Calvin isn't introducing anything new into theology. I mean, Augustine would have said the same. And for that matter, Thomas Aquinas would have said the same in his uh, Summa, representing orthodoxy, high orthodoxy of Roman Catholicism. So the, the idea of election is by no means anything new to Calvin. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Derek Thomas. Derek is the Chancellor's Professor of Systematic and Practical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and Senior Minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's also a teaching fellow with Ligonier Ministries and the author or editor of many books, including John Calvin for a New Reformation from Crossway. Today, Derek and I discuss John Calvin's enduring legacy. He reflects on the importance of predestination and election in Calvin's theology as a whole, describes what it would have been like to have Calvin as your pastor, and explains what really happened when a heretic named Michael Servetus was put to death in the town where Calvin ministered. Let's get started. Derek, thank you so much for joining me on the Crossway podcast today. Uh, Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure. So John Calvin was born over 500 years ago. And uh, I think one question that many might be wondering is, why are we still talking about him today? Why is he that important that five centuries later we would care about what he thought, what he said? Well, if you did a cursory uh, survey of... Um, church history, you know, various figures would stand out, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, but uh, John Calvin especially uh, because of what he said and how much he said. You know, this was a man who uh, had a stenographer take down uh, every word that he spoke in public uh, for the last um, almost 20 years of his life. And he preached every single day. He he wrote a great deal, but he also had a, a profound impact on the shape of theology, whether you agree or disagree, but but one way or another, you, you simply can't avoid him. Do we know why he... He had a stenographer following him around in that last couple decades of his life. Like, was there, did he ever comment on that or what the goal behind that was? It was especially relating to his preaching. And Calvin, at that point in his life, was preaching every day. Uh, there were noon, noonday services. And Calvin preached without notes. All he had in the pulpit was his Greek or Hebrew text. And uh, these sermons, they realized that these sermons w- were being lost, uh, not not just to uh, the people of Geneva, but for other cities in Europe uh, struggling with an emerging Reformation and, and needing the kind of leadership that John Calvin and others was providing. And uh, the... Uh, the stenographer was, in part, the decision of the city council. Um, you know, we think of the Reformation as a spiritual movement, but it, w- it was also a, a highly political movement. Uh, it, w- it was an attempt to uh, distance themselves from having to pay taxes to the Holy Roman Empire. And 
so the entire city uh, was involved in in that, and that the way to ensure the, the solidity of the Reformation was to provide the city with good preachers, and that in part was why Calvin was urged uh, to stay in Geneva um, in 1536. What would your response be to someone who hears that and as maybe as as they've read about the Reformation or, or frankly other uh, religious significant religious events in the history of the church and gets a sense of that intermingling of spiritual concerns and considerations and political realities and maybe feels like that undercuts the validity of the spiritual concerns? Uh, how would you respond to that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a valid concern, I think, uh, and and we mustn't judge this from an anachronistic attempt because we live in North America with a separation of church and state that is so rigid that you think it's actually in the Bible somewhere. You know, you have to put yourself back into the 16th century and into 16th century Europe and ask yourself, uh, how could the Reformation gain such solidity across different languages and, and political systems, except that it was arm in arm with the civil state. There was no getting away from that in the 16th century. It, it would be the 17th century before some of that would be, would be addressed. And to some extent, uh, if one thinks, for example, of the Church of England, you know, it, it has a civil dimension to it. The Presbyterian Church in Scotland um, is by law one that is upheld by a state legislature to this day. It can seem so foreign in, especially in American contexts, where we just have this uh, long tradition of a separation of church and state, and that, that often feels to many Americans like a pretty core principle that, um, that almost seems central to, to the American project. And and I guess with the loss of um, civility that goes along with a doctrine, say, of common grace, um, it would be very difficult for a contemporary North American to even imagine what a relationship between church and state would even look like, uh, except one of, you know, fractious disharmony. Whereas, whereas I think in the 16th century, there were a, a lot of common goals between between the desire for civility and the upholding of laws, laws that were largely based on the Bible uh, in the 16th century. Um, so the very the very understanding of morality or ethics or a legal system uh, was largely done in the civil state with reference to what the Bible said. Even if it was, I mean, even if it was a Roman Catholic understanding, but but still, there was there was a connection between how the civil state itself viewed itself, uh, and and it did so in a theistic way. Uh, I mean, there was there was virtually no atheism in the 16th century. Um, indeed, it was a, it would be a, a, a criminal and and executionable. Um, offense to call yourself an an atheist in the 16th century. So it's a it's a very different world. Yeah, perhaps one of the most uh, maybe prominent examples from Calvin's own life that illustrates, I think, this 
this union of church and state that many of us today would find uh, somewhat off-putting or confusing or bewildering is the case uh, of Michael Servetus, a man who was uh, condemned as a heretic and then burned at the stake because of his views on the Trinity, his unorthodox views on the Trinity. And many Christians today are horrified when they learn that Calvin was, uh, to some degree, involved in that condemnation and execution. Um, and they would, they would view that as something that, for the state to execute somebody because of their religious beliefs, uh, would be kind of beyond the pale and, and horrible. So my question a little bit is, is what should we make of Calvin's involvement in that execution uh, is you know, how can we listen and benefit from, from somebody who uh, was involved in something like that? Yes, I mean there are several things. First of all, uh, we need to be careful not to view the matter from a 21st century North American perspective. Um, it, it it was a fact that Savitas was a heretic. Uh, he was a heretic in the eyes not just of Geneva and the Reformers and John Calvin, but he was a heretic in the eyes of Roman Catholicism. Uh, he, he asserted things that, that the Roman Catholic Church, had, had Civitas gone to uh, a Catholic city, and he was warned not to, but he would end up somewhere, and, uh, but, but he, would have, he would have ended with the same sentence and and the 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 a catholic city would have condemned him secondly Savitas was was tried and convicted and and burnt by civil authority it wasn't ecclesiastical authority it was the civil authority that did that calvin was called upon as um a witness uh, uh a witness to verify as to whether his views were orthodox or heretical. And, and that was Calvin's contribution. Calvin asked that the sentence be less um, severe than it was, uh, asked for uh, a different form of execution, uh, you know, probably beheading. And, and you may, you know, you may react to that, that again with, with horror, but it, it did show, I think, that Calvin, it, Savitas didn't die because of Calvin. Uh, Calvin was just an expert witness in the trial, but he was he was put to death by the power of the state. Hmm. Yeah, that's such an interesting nuance that I think sometimes gets lost in how we think about and retell that story. It's often cast as if Calvin was kind of judge, jury, and executioner all at the same time. Right, and that and that's entirely false. So Calvin is known for a number of things, uh, not least of all his understanding of election and predestination. Uh, I wonder how prominently did those two doctrines fit into his theological system as a whole? I mean, it was, it was dominant. Uh, it's a key issue for Calvin. Calvin has an unrelenting view of the sovereignty of God and the fallenness of man. And that, therefore, if we are going to be saved, it can only be by the intervention of divine will and divine power. But in saying that, Calvin isn't introducing anything new into theology. I mean, Augustine would have said the same. And for that matter, Thomas Aquinas would have said the same in, in his uh, Summa, representing 
orthodoxy, high orthodoxy of Roman Catholicism. So the, the idea of election is is by no means anything new to to Calvin. There is an interesting, I think, sensitivity on the part of Calvin that when he first writes the Institutes as a, a small book that you could put in your breast pocket and a, a quarter of the size, maybe less than a quarter of the size of the final edition, um, the place of election, uh, and especially when it when he expanded it to to the to the fuller version of of fifteen thirty nine, was in book one, and it was where it logically belongs in the doctrine of God's self disclosure, uh, where perhaps you might find it in Ephesians one that it comes up front uh, as as Paul expands on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in chapter one. He comes running out of the gate with election. Um, but in the final edition of the Institutes, and, and perhaps because of pastoral considerations as to how difficult election was to a lot of people, uh, he moves the location of um, election to book three, which is actually where he's expounding the application of redemption. And And... I think that Calvin, where you might find it, for example, in Romans, that, that election comes in Romans 9, 10, and 11, after Paul has outlined the application of redemption in the first eight uh, chapters of Romans. So, so perhaps because of the influence of the epistle of Paul to the Romans on his thinking, which was considerable, um, and perhaps for pastoral reasons that you you really can't understand election until first of all you're saved and 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 redeemed and and pastorally the place to talk about election is after you've talked about how a person is justified and how a person comes into union with with Christ yeah that's so interesting I think sometimes we can tend to think of Calvin the theologian uh, Calvin, the, the ivory tower scholar, and we forget that Calvin was first and foremost a pastor who really was trying to minister to normal people in his congregation. Uh, what do we know about him as a pastor? Well, uh, he, he was never ordained, of course. Uh, he never went to seminary, uh, so, so he's this unique figure uh, who finds himself in Geneva with a colossal mind, and he's published his first book at 27 years old, and it's the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But by the 1540s and 50s, and up until his death in 1564, uh, you know, Calvin, over the space of uh, two weeks, is is preaching a dozen sermons, or, or perhaps a little more. So, so he's almost preaching a sermon every single day. His, his commitment is to uh, expound the scriptures, you know, when the Reformation came to Geneva, it, it was declared to be reformed by the civil authorities. Uh, it, it, it wasn't the church that did it. But the people of Geneva didn't all suddenly, I mean, it's not that 200,000 people are, are suddenly saved in a, in a Pentecost-like moment. No, they, they, they now have to be taught, and, and they're ignorant. They don't know anything. And, and moreover, they don't know their Bibles. So, so Calvin is 
committed to a, a sort of lectio continua preaching, preaching through the books of the Bible, verse by verse, largely Old Testament during the week and, and New Testament and Psalms on Sundays. And he went to a consistory meeting on a Thursday afternoon, evening, that considered issues of church discipline. Several hours, he, he wrote letters, you know, many, many letters uh, every day, I think. There, 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 were, there were letters that were written. And these, these were sometimes to people of great importance, but sometimes they were just to members of his own um, congregation. Uh, and, and, and so he, he, was, he was first of all a pastor and secondly a scholar, but he was, he was never in an ivory tower. Uh, all of his theological thinking was done in debate and in council with others. And, and largely, there is a, a, a connection between his preaching, his writing uh, of commentaries and and his theological writing, and especially the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And all three of those areas are, are, have a, a kind of symbiotic relationship. Indeed, if you, if you open the, the Institutes, there's, there's very little in the Institutes by way of exegesis, because he, he, he understands that the exegetical work, he, he, you go to his commentaries. And, and so the, the Institutes is, is, a, is a bringing together of theological truth, but it's often done with almost scant reference to any exegetical work. Hmm. Yeah, I want to return to his institutes uh, in just a moment. Uh, but what was he like as a counselor? A, a lot of pastors, pastors today spend a lot of their time uh, counseling people, uh, whether it's related to their marriage or related to something they're facing at work or just some struggle in their own personal life. Uh, do we have any record of how Calvin was like in that context? Yes, to some extent. Um, the minutes of the consistory where some of that of that counseling would be would be done and the the shape of that counseling uh, we, we have those minutes and those minutes um, are, are still being um, translated they were taken down in in hieroglyphics in in short shorthand and uh, so, so we do we do have, uh, some knowledge of what that of what that would look like. I mean, Calvin. You know, who who do you want to have lunch with, Luther or Calvin? And and uh, you know, Calvin was not. Uh, he, he was not a, a funny man. His disposition, I think, was was always serious. He, he didn't like much the company of fools, and um, I, I think he he led this extraordinary busy life. Uh, maybe sleeping only four hours a night, most of his life in in constant pain of some description or an, or another, uh, and all without any form of modern medicine to alleviate that pain. A, a lot of counseling, I think, in the 16th and 17th century was was not the kind of counseling that you you would find, and I'm I'm conscious here of a range of counseling and views about counseling in our time, even from a, a biblical and, and reformed point of view. 
But a, a great deal of counseling, I think, in the 16th and 17th century was teaching people what the Bible actually said. And, and, and it, it, was, it was very much led by, uh, by what you know and what you understand about Scripture. Uh, and, and certainly, if you read Calvin's sermons, I mean, there's a lot of counseling, counseling to the intellect and counseling to the affections, um, counseling to unbelief, counseling to uh, issues of relating to one another, uh, and so on. Uh, the consistory dealt uh, with a great deal of sort of marital issues, um, marital issues that now had reached a level of, well, disciplinary um, sort of status. Speaking of marriage, do we know if Calvin was ever married? Uh, yes, it was very important for the reformers to be married, uh, to to uh, remove the the mythology of of celibacy, um, which had been advocated by the medieval church, uh, and to underline the 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 goodness and propriety of sex uh, of marital uh, union. And so it was. It was extremely important for the reformers to marry. Uh, it's actually a very amusing uh, moment when they advertise in various neighboring cities that Calvin requires a wife, and 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 Calvin um, made some remark about that the only qualities that he looked for uh, was that she would care for him, take care of his of his needs. Uh, and um, he was not a romantic, um, but he married Idolette de Boer, uh, who was a widow, and she had two children of her own, and she was a former uh, nun. Uh, and um, it was a very sweet uh, marriage. I, I think it was a perfect marriage for Calvin. Uh, you know, one wonders how much of Calvin uh, she actually saw uh, because he worked all day and late into the night. Uh, they had a child uh, who died at childbirth, and Idolette herself died not long afterwards from the effects of the birth. And Calvin uh, writes very movingly and touchingly uh, about the pain of bereavement. And just, it's, it's about the only moment of tenderness that we that we actually have of Calvin's relationship with with her, but uh, I mean historians I think will will agree that it appears to have been a very happy marriage and a and a perfect sort of relationship for somebody of Calvin's um, temperament and and calling. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Martin Luther earlier, and as many will know, we have so much more, it sounds like, insight into Luther's kind of daily life and thoughts and his relationship with his wife, who he wrote about fairly often, it seems. Um, when we think of the Reformation, we probably often think of Luther first. Uh, what kind of relationship did Luther and Calvin have with one another? Did they live at the same time? Were they ever in contact? Uh, it's one of the amazing things about the uh, Reformation that they had uh, no contact whatsoever. Uh, they never met. 
the truth of the matter is that Calvin didn't speak German and uh, Luther didn't speak French. Uh, and, and so there was immediately a linguistic uh, barrier. There was also a national barrier. I mean, L Luther was German with a capital G, uh, promoted German um, ideas and, and German-ness, um, maybe too much so. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting issue in itself. Um, it, it was also, I, I mean, Luther was old enough to be Calvin's father, uh, so so there were a different generation, and and the only period when Calvin could have had any relationship with Luther was at a period when Calvin was still relatively young. Um, Calvin, I think, would have disagreed with Luther on a number of things. He's very careful never to disagree publicly uh, with Luther. It would have been disastrous for the Reformation had he done that. And 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 even in even in the area where they would have come to very sharply different views on on the supper, um, Calvin. Uh, was, was, I think, very careful not to address Luther himself. Uh, he went after Lutherans, but not, not, not Luther himself, B because I think Luther rightly had the status of, of the father of the Reformation. And, and uh, so, so he's, Calvin, I think, is deferential towards Luther, but they, they never met, they didn't correspond. Um, and one uh, when, when wonders, uh, one wonders how the Reformation would have gone, you know, had they met or had they been able to correspond. Yeah, I'm curious what you, you've studied both of them at length. Uh, what do you think that conversation would have been like if they were to sit down for dinner together? Oh, I would pay good money to hear it. Um, <laughs> I, I just think they were very different temperaments and very different characters. I, I mean, Luther is a, you know, and I'm not a, a, a scholar on Luther at all, uh, but he's a larger-than-life figure. L Luther said outrageous things, uh, you know, over lunch and and uh, in uh, meetings in the pub, uh, you know, over a glass of ale and and the table talk uh, contains, you know, many uh, an offensive. I mean, it was offensive in the 16th century, and it sure is offensive now. Uh, I mean, some of the things he said. And I think Calvin was much more careful uh, about how he said things and had had very little time for anything other than his work. So now turning to Calvin's most famous book, you've mentioned it already, Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, you've hinted at a few of these things, but maybe briefly, why why did he write this book? What was the original purpose uh, for writing it? Well, uh, you, you have to think of a, a, a lawyer, which he was. I mean, he had trained to, to be a lawyer. It was his father's wish. Uh, his father fell out with the Catholic Church and then died. And then Calvin returned uh, to, to what I think had always been his first love, and that was theology. And, and not necessarily to become a priest, but, but he was in... France uh, had become involved with the Reformation, had contributed perhaps 
a sermon or two that was pivotal to the Reformation in in France and suddenly falls foul uh, of the authorities and especially the king to the point where he 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 has to leave he becomes an exile and and he will never be back in France ever again uh, because he would have been he would have been executed um, and I, and I think Calvin from that point you know he's a he's a student he's been involved in some pranks about putting posters with some uh, maybe graphic drawings and 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 words about the king uh, and the Reformation, and then he 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 disappears for a while, uh, and and then reemerges two or three years later, and and now for sure he 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 has been converted uh, uh, and very solidly converted, and he's. He's written uh, like a PhD on Clement, uh, De Clementia, uh, and he's written a book about soul sleep, what, what happens uh, in the intermediate state. And uh, he, he writes this book, Psychopanicia. It's, it's a young man's book and, and, and not, not terribly uh, well written, perhaps by, the, by later standards of his, of his writing. But at, at 26, he he writes the Institutes of the Christian Religion, publishes it when he's twenty seven, and no one has heard of this man. I mean, he's he's a he's a nobody. He's come out of nowhere, and and with the self confidence to to write what what basically is a, a compendium of theology. It's a it's a systematic theology and has a very definite. Uh, structure, although it's a, it's a quarter of the size of what it will become. Um, but this book has been published, and people have, are beginning to read it, and 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 suddenly they realize that they've got a genius on their hands. Uh, and uh, he is making his way through Geneva. He's in a hotel of some description. Uh, and I think his intent was to... Um, go to somewhere in Europe and 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 become that ivory tower uh, scholar, perhaps te teach at a university and and write books. And I think that's what Calvin wanted to do. And it was Farrell uh, who put the uh, the heebie-jeebies on him, uh, threatening uh, that God would punish him and strike him dead if he attempted to leave the city. And uh, and and. You know, when when those kind of s statements were made in the 16th century, you took them seriously, and and Calvin remains. So the Institutes becomes a book that Calvin is constantly working on, and over the next 20, uh, tw 25 years, this book is going to grow uh, to four times its size. Uh, it's going to take on a very definite shape. Uh, perhaps patterned after the Apostles' Creed and perhaps patterned especially after uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Romans. Uh, and when you read the Institutes today, if you pick up a complete edition, and there are many editions of the Institutes, and recently uh, the 1542 French edition has been published in, in an English translation by 
the banner of truth, for example, and it's uh, it's about half the size of the final version. And in that sense, a lot easier to read. But if you if you read the full complete edition of the institutes, it, it's difficult to read because there are bits of it that are uh, completely out of proportion to other bits of it. And and the fact is that if if a if a doctrine um, isn't uh, controversial in the 16th century, so the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, isn't isn't controversial in the 16th century. So it receives, you know, very little attention. But but if a doctrine is controversial and Calvin has has got involved in the controversy, then that section of the Institutes may, may be 10, 15, 20 times the length that it perhaps needs to be because you have the full description of whoever it is that Calvin is, is contradicting. Hmm. So what would you say is the biggest misconception related to Calvin that you've encountered in your own life and ministry? That he was, you know, fixated on on election and and predestination, and and you sort of can't get beyond that, and and you miss the fact that Calvin was a preacher, pastor, as much, if not more, than he was uh, a theologian. He loved the Bible and believed that the way to promote godliness was by making the Bible and its truth comprehensible to men and women. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast and for sharing some of your own experiences with Calvin, uh, your own understanding of him and his life. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been fun. That was Derek Thomas on the legacy of John Calvin. For more, be sure to check out the book he edited with John Tweeddale for Crossway, John Calvin, for a New Reformation, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.